Okay, so we are making our very, very slow, slow walk through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We'll be in this until probably the end of March, um, and then we'll move on to some other things. So it's really going to be a slow journey. We are going to take a month away for uh, Christmas, and so that that breaks things up a little bit as well. But uh, we'll get to about chapter 5, I think, before Christmas in 1 Timothy, and and we'll, then we'll pick it up in the new year. But today, we've, uh, this is, I think, week number four in chapter one. And we're going to finish chapter one today, which is good. Um, and we're looking at just the last few verses. And actually, to be honest with you, I really considered just putting these verses into last week's sermon, just lumping them in. But I, as I read them, as I thought about them, I'm like, ah, oh, there's just too much to deal with here. And we, we really should just take care of them on their own. Um, so what we're seeing, just if you haven't been with us or if you're, uh, if you're not remembering where we've been so far, we have a trajectory that we've seen. We've, we've seen Paul uh, first uh, give Timothy his instructions. Uh, the reason he wrote this letter is to give Timothy instructions for how to lead this church in the city of Ephesus um, and particularly uh, what he needs to do with the people who are uh, really causing problems. There are people in the, the church that are teaching false doctrine, uh, that have swerved the church. He says in verse 6 that they swerved from the truth and uh, swerved from the gospel. And Timothy is there to get it course corrected back into the right place. And so he spends some time just talking through those issues and, and then last week we saw how he just clearly lays out what the center is. Like we've been talking about what it means to be a gospel-centered church. And we have to define what the gospel is to know what the center is. And so last week we really spent most of our time talking through that. Um, but Paul defines the gospel really clearly, simply, and this is not the only place in the scriptures where he does so, but this is his definition uh, in First Timothy, it is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we all want to bank our lives on, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And so um, that's what we looked at last week. And, and Paul talked about how uh, we can see the grace of Jesus towards sinners and that he then calls us to extend the same kind of patience and grace that Jesus extends to us to one another in the church. So that's where we kind of landed last week. Now, verse 18 through 20, these last few little verses, um, maybe at first glance don't seem like they have a ton to talk about, but they, they really do bring up some big things. And so we're going to spend just a little time looking at this, uh, and then we're going to bounce around a little bit to some other places that bring some clarity. Uh, so just so you know, we're going to be jumping around a little more than usual. But I think it'll be helpful for us to see. Um, ultimately, um, we see that Paul is concluding chapter 1 with kind of coming full circle to where he started this letter. It's like he's reaffirming again, in the, just in the first few paragraphs, okay, this is what you're here for, Timothy. Here it is. And he's going to summarize it this way, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Um, so basically, Paul is telling Timothy, I trust you with this. 
You're capable to do this. You've been called and equipped to do this. And this is a hard task, an extremely hard task, especially given that we know from later in this letter that Timothy is a very young guy. We don't know how young he is, uh, but he's walking into a, uh, a church that he probably doesn't have a lot of authority, uh, or at least um, outwardly doesn't seem to have a lot of authority because of his age. Uh, and again, like youth is kind of a relative thing, right? But, but either way, we know he's a young guy. And, and so Paul affirms that even though he's young, even though he, he may not have the natural authority of age, he has been entrusted with this task. He has been given the call. These prophecies were made about him. And, and that's, a, that's referenced again later in the, in the letter as well. Um, we'll get there when we get there. Um, but, but this is the call that he has, that he would wage the good warfare, fight the good fight, be in this. And essentially what Paul is saying is that the church's doctrine and the church's culture, um, which we believe are just interconnected and they should be linked together, that the church's doctrine and the church's culture is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And, and more, more than just the church in a general sense, the people that make up the church are worth fighting for. The people that are being led astray from the truth are worth fighting for. And, and so Paul is calling Timothy to wage the good warfare. But one of the questions that came to my mind is, uh, as I read through this, is what, why did this happen in the first place? Like, why is Timothy now here having to deal with this and, and doing all the things that Paul is calling him to do, which is a very hard task? Why did they get here in the first place? And I think the Bible actually enlightens us on that issue. Um, if you go back in your Bibles to the uh, book of Acts, chapter 20, we're just going to look at a couple verses here real quickly. Um, Acts chapter 20, Paul is, uh, this is what's happening in the text, Paul is saying farewell uh, to, the ch- to the church in Ephesus, particularly to the elders in this church, He spent three years with them, as he references in the verses we'll read. We'll see that. He spends three years with these people. He's trained them. He's gotten them uh, established. And and he's going to go away. He leaves. He gets on a boat to sail away. Um, But before he does, he gives them some final parting words. And I think these are really insightful into why we're seeing 1 Timothy and, and what's happening here. Look at verse 28. We'll just, and there's a ton. This whole chapter is worth reading, but we just got to look at it quickly. So verse 28, Paul kind of concludes this whole thing with this. He's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he first starts with this, uh, pay attention, you guys. And he tells them to pay attention to two things, to themselves and then to the whole church that, th- that God has put in their charge to oversee. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Why? Because if we don't pay careful attention to our hearts and continue to center ourselves again on the finished work of Christ, 
we will go astray. It's just the, it is just the fact for all of us. Whether we're leaders or not, every Christian needs to stay focused on the finished work of Christ as, as our foundation and our hope and our lives. And so he says, you have to pay attention to yourselves and you have to pay attention to the, to the flock, to the, to the, this is, a, you know, there's a sheep analogy here, right? Um, elders, overseers, pastors, they're, they're called shepherds elsewhere in the scriptures. And so he's saying, you have to watch out for the church, watch out for yourselves. And here's why. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, so Paul's saying, after I leave here, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Okay, we'll stop there. But here's, here's what Paul says, right? Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to your church. Because when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in here. And he says, not only from outside, but from within. From among your own selves. Now that could be from within the church. Or I think it's actually referring more to within the eldership. That, that the elders, the, the leaders, the overseers of the church are, some of them may become sh- uh, sh- uh, wolves and not sheep and, and mistreat the church to draw away disciples after them to speak twisted things. And so Paul, <laughs> this is just so crazy. Paul literally tells them what's going to happen if they don't pay attention. And then who knows how many years go by, not, not so many some, probably. But then you fast forward to First Timothy and the exact thing that Paul said would happen, happened. Why? Because they didn't pay careful attention. They dropped the ball. And so here, here they are among fierce wolves in the flock, leading the church astray, driving them away from Christ, Sick and twisted things are being said. And so here's why Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. Because if you are a shepherd and a wolf comes in to kill your flock, do you just let them kill the flock or do you fight the wolf? You fight the wolf. Now, we're not, shep- we're not shepherds for the most part, right? So thankfully, I don't have to fight wolves on a regular basis, literally. Uh, but this is the thing. Like, you don't just coddle the wolf and go, okay, come hang out. It's fine. Like, you, you fight the wolf. And that's what shepherds had to do. And shepherds in <laughs> Paul's world didn't even have guns. They had to do combat with their hands or staffs or, I mean, up close and personal to those wolves. like right. But there was a fight that needed to be had, and this is what Paul is saying. Okay, the wolves have come in, as I knew they would, and, and here you are, you have to fight this fight. So that's the context, okay? But the point is that Paul is affirming the, the, the dignity of the church and saying the church is worthy of being fought for because Christ loves his church. And Jesus gives human leaders 
to the church to help do that, to help protect it, guard it, and keep it secure. And when the church goes off in some weird direction, there's a war that has to be fought. And it's not a war that we fight like in human terms. We're not fighting the way the world fights, but we still have a a war to wage. And Paul is calling Timothy to do this. And this, I can just imagine how uh, this is sort of like his reinforcing, getting underneath Timothy and going, dude, get into this. You can do it. Because he's probably terrified of what's in front of him. So, so Paul's affirming that call. Now, if you come back to 1 Timothy 1, let's look at verse uh, 19. He says, holding faith and a good conscience. So that's how you wage the good warfare. By holding on to faith in Christ and standing before him uh, and others in, in integrity, right? That's how, we, that's how we wage the fight. And Paul then says this, by rejecting this, by rejecting the faith in a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Now that's, that's an image, right? A shipwreck of their faith. Like, just absolute destruction. Their faith is just crushed and scattered. So by rejecting this, some, not all, notice that, not everyone in this church has abandoned the faith. Not everyone in this church has left the gospel, but some have, and they've made a shipwreck of their faith. And then verse 20, look at it. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So he actually calls these dudes out by name. Okay, that seems pretty bold, right? He calls them out by name. Now, the reason he calls them out by name is probably, most commentators think this, uh, that they were elders in this church. That Hymenaeus and Alexander were probably elders that became wolves in this church. And when an elder, a a leader in the congregation, fails and and diverts the congregation... They need to be called out, like specifically. It's different. There's a different standard of of things for the believers in leadership and the believers that are not in leadership. I think we handle things differently. Uh, We don't publicly shame uh, just the typical Christian who struggles. But if you're a person, an authority and leadership in the church, and you are just taking that church in a terrible direction— uh, yeah, you need to be called out. And because you're held, the Bible says you're held to a higher standard as a teacher and a leader in the church. And so there is, a, there is something there. I think Paul's, he's not naming every name, right? He says, among whom. So there's more than just these two guys, but these two guys are the ones he calls out by name because these are the guys who are probably leading the charge Uh, away from Christ and there were probably lots of other people in the church that were following them that he doesn't call out he doesn't list this long laundry list of names and shame every single person but he calls out the two that are leading the charge and so he says among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander now we're getting into this next phrase and this is probably um, probably the hardest phrase in the in the passage for sure Um, But look at what he says. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. 
wow, okay, that's, that's pretty strong. Um, so what does Paul mean here? What is Paul talking about here? Um, it sounds really, really harsh, right? And it kind of is. Uh, but I think that Paul's kind of using a shorthand. Again, with Timothy, he has so much context uh, that he doesn't have to lay out a huge, long explanation. I think Timothy understands probably more than the average person what Paul is referring to. So he's, he's saying he's handed them over to Satan. Um, and I think what that means is that um, basically he's established or he's taken these guys through the process of church discipline, which is laid out for us by Christ in Matthew 18. We're going to look at that in a moment. And then it's also laid out uh, elsewhere in, the, in Paul's writings as well. But he's probably taken Alexander and Hymenaeus through this process of church discipline. And on the other side of that, these guys uh, refuse to repent, refuse to change, refuse to acknowledge any wrong. And so the, the thing that has to happen at that point is you assume Again, we can't, we can't make every determination, but you make an assumption based off their insistence on uh, not repenting that they are not believers. Okay, you, you, we're, not, we're not judging anybody and saying, oh, you're absolutely not a believer, but we're making a, an assumption and a, and a safe assumption that if the church and the leaders and, and even the apostle Paul and Timothy are calling you out and saying, listen, this is a, problem. This is a sin. You need to deal with this. You need to repent of this. You need to turn and renounce these things. And if they just continue to refuse and refuse and refuse, that's a pretty clear indication of where they stand with Jesus, at least in that moment, right? And so the, so when Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan, he's not saying that he literally has the authority to hand these guys over to Satan, right? He, what he's saying is, is this, that these guys are demonstrating that they're not on team Jesus right now. And if you're not on team Jesus, then what team are you on, right? Satan's. So, so that's where Paul's at. He's, a, he's making the assumption, and I think safely so, that these guys are not believers, and so he's going, okay, here they go. Now, here's what's important to notice. Um, Paul doesn't put a period there and just call it a day. He actually says something else right after this. this, is, this we just ended it halfway through a sentence. Here's the rest of the sentence. I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this is interesting, I think, because Paul is essentially saying, yeah, they are not demonstrating any fruit of repentance and godliness and Christ-likeness. And so they're, it's a safe assumption to, to say they're not on Christ's side in this. They're on Satan's side in this, in the, in the grand scheme of things. However, by Paul saying, we've handed them over to Satan, we've done this for a purpose so that they would learn not to blaspheme. I read this and go, that is the, the patience that Paul has just talked about in the prior section. That Paul is demonstrating that patience to go, you know, these guys, Hymenaeus, Alexander, they're not, they're not with Jesus. 
They're not with Jesus right now. They have refused to repent. I'm, I'm making an assumption here that's not quite in the text, but I'm assuming Paul, knowing what he needed to do to restore people to faith uh, in their sin, he took these guys through a process of church discipline, took them through that whole stage, and at the end of that, they were still refusing to turn. So Paul's going, okay, you're not on team Jesus. That's evident. But here's where we're at. We want you to still... He wants these two guys still to learn not to blaspheme. He wants them still to come back to Jesus. Even though they have been train wrecking this church and shipwrecking their own faith and ruining so many of the things, Paul still has a heart that Christ has for these men to say the process of church discipline and the process of this this call is to teach them not to blaspheme, to actually come back to Christ. So we're, we're in some interesting territory here today because this is not a subject that gets talked about a whole lot. We don't talk about church discipline very often in our, in our culture or our, our context. And this is great. Like we're working through things in the Bible and we've got to just deal with stuff as it comes. And this is not like the subject I would have chosen out of the th- thin air to talk about today. But that's why I like to preach through the Bible because it forces me to talk about things we need to hear uh, even when we don't want to hear it. And so here Paul's laying out essentially in very short, a very short s- sentence what church pl- discipline is and what the purpose of church discipline is. That they may learn not to blaspheme means that restoration is always, always, underline always, the intention and the purpose of church discipline. We don't take people through a process of, of you know, confronting them over their sin, showing them where they've wronged uh, either someone else or the Lord, and then just toss them to the side and go, have a nice day. You're out on the curb. You're in the doghouse. That's never the point. The point is to bring people into restoration with Christ and then restoration with the church. That's always the point. Paul says it here to these two guys who later on in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about Alexander again. Uh, He says, Alexander the coppersmith, Uh, did me great harm. So years after 1 Timothy was written, Alexander was still being a punk to Paul and doing terrible things. And yet Paul's heart for this guy is still, he wants him to learn not to blaspheme. He wants him to come back to Christ. But here's the deal. When there's no remorse and no repentance, then the church has to treat that person in light of their need for Jesus, right? We don't assume that person is still a, a faithful follower of Christ and therefore we just bring them fully into the fellowship. No, we, we have to pivot how we view that person, not in a way that casts them out, but in a way that draws them to Christ for salvation. And that's the point. This is what we have to do. This is what Jesus talks about. And so let's turn to Matthew 18. This is how we actually have church discipline established for us in the Gospel of Matthew by Jesus himself. He tells us what we ought to do. And I'm assuming Paul is working off of these instructions. So verse 15, uh, I think we'll be down to verse um, 17. 
We'll stop there. So here's what G- these are Jesus' words. He says, if your brother sins against you, okay, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Someone in your church, someone in your life who's a fellow Christian, at least seemingly a fellow Christian, sins against you. Okay, what do you do? Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, step one. Someone sins against you, you approach that brother or sister one-on-one, in private, and, and address to them the issue and say, this is what you did, this harmed me, this wronged me, this sinned against me, and you bring them into that realization. Here's the fact. Most people probably uh, don't mean to sin against you or harm you. And so by enlightening them to that fact, we'll lead them to repentance and an apology and, and things will be settled. But that's not always how it works. Okay, so look at what he goes on to say. Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. And that's the goal, right? You want to gain your brother. That's, what's, that's the goal. But if he does not listen, so there is a, there's, sin, there's sin in us, there's hard-heartedness, all these things. It is possible that you confront someone over sin and they go, now you're crazy, I'm not wrong. And they just dig their heels in. Okay, if that happens, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three, of two or three witnesses. So next thing you do is, okay, he sinned against me, he's not repentant, uh, she's, she's not coming back to Christ, whatever the case is. So here we go, let's bring a couple other people who are aware of the situation. This is still a small circle, right? Small circle, still aware of the situation and, and they can come and help me compel this person to see their sin and hopefully turn to Jesus with it. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, so there's still a possibility of digging in the heels, refusing to acknowledge wrong. Here's what you do next. Tell it to the church. Now, by the church, lots and lots of opinions are are on this, on what it means. Some people think it means you parade this person in front of the whole congregation and bring it out, and uh, I don't think so, okay? Um, But I think what what Jesus is referring to here is the leadership of the church, the, the elders, the pastors, bring it to that group, at least initially, okay? Um, still trying to keep the circle fairly small, although it's getting wider and wider. But you're bringing in the authority uh, that God has placed in that church through the elders and pastors of that church, and you're bringing that issue to them. And any pastor or elder who uh, loves Jesus is going to want that person to be restored and brought to fellowship with Christ. So they're going to get involved and try to speak to that person and, and help them see their sin. So what happens next? Look at verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. So that, that's where Hymenaeus and Alexander are, right? Then let him, this is what Jesus says, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is where things get really interesting. Because Gentiles, obviously in the context of Jesus' words, would be people outside of the covenant community of the, of the Israelites. Okay, so it would be kind of junk drawer term for unbeliever, 
And then he says tax collector, which would have been internal in, within Israel, but would have been people that were just completely hated, despised by the culture because they were Jews that sided with the Romans and were taking money from their fellow countrymen to give to the Romans. Like, not, not a cool thing, right? So lots of tax collectors were hated. Um, it's interesting to note that Matthew was a tax collector, so the guy who wrote this down uh, was in that boat at one time. And so here, here Jesus says, this is, this is where things get so messy because we read these words and our, our sinful hearts can go, what Jesus means is we just got to throw them to the side. But here's the thing. Does Jesus throw away the Gentiles or tax collectors in his life? No, Jesus actually moves closer to those people. Right? It's the tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Jesus and that he's loving and embracing. So this is not saying that if they refuse to listen to the church, then you're just done with them and throw them away. It means that you see them in the context of unbelief, a context that they are not Christians. But how do you treat people who are not Christians? You love them and share the gospel with them so that they will be saved. Like this is, there's no point in this process where uh, the church gives up on these people. These people may give up on the church and we can, and we can say, okay, we can wash our hands of that because John talks about how if these people were really of us, they would have stayed with us, but they left us, right? So there is a category in which people who are in just such deep sin and such deep brokenness that no matter how much the church draws near to them in love, they're going to keep pulling back and eventually just leave the whole thing behind. That's, that's on them, right? But on us, as far as it goes for us, as followers of Jesus, we don't throw people aside. How dare we think that we do? We, we let Jesus deal with that himself. He can handle that. He can remove people from the congregation as he sees fit. And yes, we do have to transition people from okay, you are a, a member in good standing or you're in a good position to, to actually be used and lead here and serve here. And we obviously have to transition them from that standing to a different standing, a standing of you're an unbeliever, you don't know the gospel, you don't love Christ, but we want you to learn not to blaspheme. We want you to learn to love Jesus. So it just changes the dynamics. It doesn't mean we just pull our arms around everybody in, in brotherly, Christianly fellowship. But there is still a call on us to love these people. And I, and I think that that's where so many of us struggle, is that when somebody continues to dig their heels in and into sin, they, it's easier for us to just go, yeah, I don't want to deal with you anymore, so we'll just throw you out. But I think the heart of Christ is to see those people Yes, be removed from leadership if they're in leadership. Be removed from positions of serving that require a heart that's been changed by Jesus. Of course you do that. But you can still love and embrace these people in, in Christ as an unbeliever, as we would with any non-Christian, and try to point them to the saving hope of the gospel. Doesn't mean that that's going to work, right? Doesn't mean it's going to lead to their salvation. Hopefully it does, but it may not. Apparently, in Alexander's case, it didn't. And that's, that's again, we, we're, that's beyond our pay grade. We have to put that into hand, the hands of Christ and say, 
you do with this person what you want. And I think most often um, somebody is going to remove themselves from the issue. But again, there's no perfect, tidy, clean way to handle this. It's a, it's a complex thing, which is why the Bible doesn't give us like an exact script because every situation is different and every person is different. So it gives us general principles and then we have to kind of fit within those principles the specifics. Okay. So here's the question though, and this is just where my mind went. As we look back at um, 1 Timothy Paul saying, I've handed him over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Um, I, think that, I think what's clear is that the vast, vast majority of Christians, true Christians, people who have trusted Christ, people who have given their lives to him by faith and have received the grace of God, the vast majority will not get to this point. They just won't the vast majority of people who are truly changed by Jesus are going to be changed at step one. Somebody lovingly confronts them about their sin and they're going to say, oh my goodness, yes, I'm wrong. Father, forgive me. Please forgive me, brother, sister, and, and let's, let's move forward. The vast majority of Christians are not going to get to step three. And And if they get to step three and then still refuse to repent, that's why Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile because it's obvious by this point they're not Christians. So we need to keep that in mind. Like the steps generally do work. 90 plus percent of the time it works to get people to Christ. But in these rare cases like Alexander and Hymenaeus, it doesn't work. And you get them all the way to the end, and it's, it's still, they're still digging in their heels. But what I want to spend our time talking about today is this. Uh, just the remainder of it. We've got a few minutes to talk about this. What steps do we take as a, as a group of Christians, as a church, to help people not get to this place to start with? Like, that should be what we're talking about, right? We, we can talk about, okay, all the way at the end of the line, how do the elders in the church handle this situation. But I think what's helpful for us is how do we, as the average typical Christian, loving each other, helping each other walk with Jesus, how do we help people not get to this point at all? How do we help them get back to Jesus before it's way further down the line? And I think that's, that's where Paul addresses the issue um, somewhere else. It's not in First Timothy. We have to go somewhere else, but I think it's helpful to see what he says on this. If you turn to Galatians chapter 6, I think this is where we see it um, most clearly. Galatians 6, uh, verse 1 and 2, just two verses. He says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone, anyone, right, is caught in any transgression. So first thing to notice, anyone can be caught in any transgression. Anyone can. Anyone has the capability to fall into a sin. So if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So... This is what Paul says, is if you are 
caught in a transgression, then somebody who is spiritual, what does that mean? That sounds scary. I'm not sure that anyone feels like they're in that category. Well, Paul explains what it means to be spiritual in chapter five. He simply is saying, if you are walking in the spirit, if you actually love Jesus and are wanting to honor him and are following his Holy Spirit's leading, you are spiritual. Okay, so it's not a super category of Christian. It's the typical Christian who loves Jesus and wants to walk by the Spirit. So that's how Paul defines spiritual. And so if that's the place you're in in life, then you can help restore that person who has fallen into a sin and you can help bring them back. But notice how we're to do that. In a spirit of gentleness. Nobody is meant to be treated harshly as they are as they're in a transgression they are meant to be treated in a spirit of gentleness that draws them to Christ who by the way defines himself as gentle right so this is flowing from the heart of Christ a gentle savior uses gentle people to bring people into a restored relationship with him He says this, verse uh, one, we're still in verse one. He says, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. So there is a a category for, okay, if we're not watching ourselves, which is what Paul tells the Ephesian elders to do, if we're not keeping watch on ourselves, we may enter into a, a season of trying to help someone and then end up falling into the trap ourselves. So we gotta be careful there. And then verse two says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's what's interesting. I think so often we pluck that verse, bear one another's burdens out of context. What Paul means by a burden is a sin, a transgression. So let's think of it this way. Unrepentant sin can be thought of, I think, as a spiritual injury. Okay, follow, the, follow my logic here. In any injury, if you're out in the woods with a friend, you're hiking, and your friend loses their footing, rolls their ankle, can't walk uh, without further injuring their ankle, do we just, like, force that person to walk on an injured leg? I mean, not if we're a good friend. Sarah? Um, Listen, we, we don't, like... We don't just drag them out of the woods. We carry them out of the woods, right? We let them put their weight on us and we bear their burden. We let them take the weight off their ankle and we carry them out of the woods. That's how Paul tells us we need to handle the situation in a spiritual burden. We get that intuitively when it comes to a physical injury. Nobody in this room would go, oh yeah, we just got to, drag them out and force them to step on that leg or anything. We don't, we don't do that. But we do that so often when it comes to spiritual things, don't we? We just treat people with harshness and, and cruelty at times, thinking you just got to fix yourself and hurt. Like, that is not what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to be gentle and to bear each other's burdens. And, and what do we do when we do that? We're carrying them, we're carrying the weight of that with them to Jesus, to the person who can truly help them, to the person that can heal them, to the person who can bring them to restoration. 
We do, but we're called to do that with gentleness, softly, helpfully. And I think we just blow past these things so often in the scriptures and we just go, okay, I just got to like kind of coerce or force or, or yell at this person or make them feel terrible about themselves until they change. And that's never how Jesus deals with us. And it's not how Jesus intends for us to be dealt with. In fact, when you think about what Jesus does for Peter, uh, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus meets him after he had denied him three times during the crucifixion story. Peter goes back to go fishing because he's just like, I'm done. I, I can't follow Jesus. I've disqualified myself. So he goes back to his day job and Jesus meets him on the shore as he's fishing, cooks the dude breakfast and then says, hey, um, do you love me, Peter? And he says that three times to Peter. Same number of times that Peter denied him, Jesus asks him to affirm his love. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And then Jesus says, so, okay, if you love me, then take care of my sheep. Jesus meets Peter in his brokenness, in his sinfulness, in his need for restoration, and he doesn't lambast him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't hurl insults at him. He simply asks him, do you love me? If you love me, care for my people, and if you love me, come follow me. And I think that that's the approach we should take. We should take a cue from Jesus' life and say, okay, let's help each other, but let's do it in a spirit of gentleness as the scriptures command. And I think if we start to actually do things the way God wants us to do things, we will see fruit and I think the reason we don't see the fruit we want to see is because we're doing things that we think are right, but aren't God's way. We have to do the right thing God's way, and then we'll see what God wants to do through this. And that, that takes a lot of sensitivity, and it takes a lot of time. And I know that none of us are perfectly there. Neither am I. None of us are. But we got to continue to press into that and say, okay, Jesus wants people who are far from him to come back to him. And I know it's not as clean and simple as I'm making it sound, but it can be successful in the hands of Jesus as we walk with him and actually do the things he wants us to do in the way he wants us to do them. Okay, so let's love each other well. Let's be gentle with each other. You may be thinking about people in your own life right now that you have not been gentle with and it's time for that. In that. If that's the case, then you need to repent to Jesus in that and then approach that brother or sister in a spirit of gentleness. But here's what we all need to hear. Every single one of us is a broken, sinful person. And every single one of us has the gentle Savior calling us to him. Let's come to him. Whatever you're going through, whatever you've dealt with this week, whatever it is that you've that you've rebelled in, you can come back. And Jesus calls you back in gentleness to his heart. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us well, so well, far better than we deserve. And God, you have um, made it possible for us to be changed, uh, to be drawn into you, God, I just pray that you would do the work in our hearts that need to be done right now. 
you know each of us perfectly. And so we pray that you would um, encourage those who are discouraged right now. I pray that you would restore those who are in a, in a uh, season of unrepentant sin, that you would get them to repentance and get them to restoration. I pray, God, you know every person in this room and where we're at. So I, I just ask that you do the work in us that needs to be done. And we ask it in your name. Amen.